a listener production. This episode is brought to you by Bendix Brakes, Denso and Exidy. The Grill, a collaboration with VACC, the Victorian Automotive Chamber of Commerce and powered by Listener. We have been doing this great little show for nearly two years now. How come we don't have a big, deep voiceover guy doing the the dramatic intro? Mm. Something like this. (laughs) They're back for another fortnightly download of Auto Industry Insights. Jeff, the only man to get bitten by a bee in the eye. (laughs) Rusty, how the hell did the steering wheel come off? And Shane, who fitted right in when Top Gear visited the baboons. Get ready to shift it up a gear for the second ep of the month of May, The Grill. You won't believe what happens next. Uh, hi, everybody. Thank you. That is a very poor fourth-string version of Steve Britton there. A uh, bit coming up in this episode, including the very popular Blow It Out Your Tailpipe segment. Jeff will sift through a little deeper into the most recent VFAX figures, plus part two with Aussie Sporting Royalty. Our feature guest, Lane Beachley. We had a great reaction to part one a couple of weeks ago. Thank you for that. If you haven't heard it, you can find it in the Listener Library or wherever you get your pods. Just search The Grill Podcast. Jeffrey, g'day. Did you get a letter from Charlie to go to the coronation? <laughs> Sorry, Chuck, I'm, I'm tied up with The Grill Podcast, old chap. I got the letter and I said, look, I'm really busy. Um, and, and, any, <laughs> and of course, you know, BACC, we recently uh, hosted the Automotive Industry Awards, which, you know, Shane was the MC, an amazing night at Apprentices there, people from industry accepting their awards. Um, it is the big night of industry and it's, uh, you know, for people out there, if, if, you, if you weren't involved this year, get involved next year. Well done. It was a huge night. It was like the Automotive Logies. For me and my job, that's that's a great night for the whole industry yeah. and uh, I'm very proud of what happens there. Yeah, you yeah. should be. Well done on the MC duties too, young man. I hear you did a very, very good job. That's um, just a rumour. <laughs> somehow, I hear you've also been coordinating, doing it yourself, something. What is this about your Morris getting a fresh coat of paint? Yes. it's. Uh, <laughs> I know, I know. Jeff's staring at me because I keep... I reckon I've asked Jeff about 20 times whether I'm overcapitalising on this, and he said yes every yeah, time, yeah. and it doesn't change, <laughs> still, my, it yes. doesn't change my coordinates. <laughs> I'm still heading true north. Yeah, so it's, uh, yes, it's, it's, it's about to be sprayed, and so the engine has been done. I did that on and off over the last few years. Um, when I say I did that, I paid the invoices for my mechanic, <laughs> mechanic who's doing it. Gearbox has been done, new rims, new tyres. So, yeah, it's getting, it's getting uh, a spruce nice. up. And colour? Just, we've what just, colour? So it's going to be green, and yeah. I think it's almond green is the original nice. colour. Yeah, nice. It, I don't know yeah. if it looks like an almond green, but it's called yeah. almond green. They're a great shape car. I used to have a Morris Minor years ago. The shape's beautiful, very practical vehicle. Uh, and even though I take the mech out of your investment, Shane, I reckon they're a great old car. And I they're love good it. Fun. They're good fun. And I know we've talked about it before, but I still love the fact that the motor in it is half the power of the last <laughs> motorbike I owned, true story. <laughs> One of the last Indians I had was two, over 2,000 cc's. Yeah, okay. This thing's the 1100. And we've picked a patina finished, a weathered-looking uh, new oh, yeah. upholstery. Yeah, they've got this new patina. It looks like leather, but it's not. Okay. Um, Faux yeah. leather? Yeah, yeah, okay. But it's, right. it looks great. It looks it's patinaed. Yeah, so, yeah, we're very excited. So. Your Wikipedia page has just been updated with an almond green paint job for the Morris. <laughs> we love it. 
I get little messages from time to time where someone's having a bit of fun in there with mine changing my middle name. You know, is your middle name really Aloysius or Murgatroyd or something? No, it's not. <laughs> a message from one of our valued sponsors now, and then we will launch into VFAX. Stick around here on The Grill. A quick break to talk about Bendix brakes, specifically their General CT brake pads, the perfect braking solution for everyday driving. Bendix General CT brakes utilise stealth advanced technology, offering smoother and quieter braking for more comfortable day-to-day driving. Ceramic technology means that they also deliver improved stopping performance, low dust, low rotor wear and enhanced durability. Bendix's blue titanium stripe technology removes the need for bedding in The noise-absorbing shims reduce vibration and noise during extreme braking. For the perfect everyday braking solution, ask your mechanic to fit Bendix General CT brake pads, available from all good Bendix stockers. Bendix, put your foot down with confidence. Now, we had a snapshot of a few things that caught our eye from the April VFAX figures. That's in our last Ep a fortnight ago. You can find that on the listener app or wherever you get your podcasts. Jeff, what else caught your attention in those figures? Well, I think these are the most fascinating figures uh, in the whole VFAX uh, arrangement. And uh, in the last episode, I mentioned the government moving on the what they call the fuel efficiency standard, which is basically CO2 emissions from vehicles. And, you know, the, the community is becoming more engaged in this whole discussion and certainly more educated as well. Let's have a look at the figures for April. 6,530 battery electric vehicles were sold in April. That's pure electric. And year to date, there's been 23,926 battery electric vehicles sold. That's huge. It's a big number and probably bigger than a lot of people would have expected. Hmm. Uh, Accounts for 6.8% of the new vehicle market. So it looks as if pure EVs trending are going to come in for the year, the calendar year that is, at around 90,000 units. Now, I was saying at the beginning of the year, I thought it'd be around 100,000 units. That was incredibly optimistic. Mm -hmm. But 90,000, that's getting up, you know, if it hit 100,000, you're 10% of the vehicle market in Australia in new cars being uh, pure electric, which is, you know, that's starting to move. There's some momentum here. Tesla still the leader in this group, 3,676 sales, accounting for 56.3% of all battery sales for the month. If they can hang on to that market share for a long time, I think they'll be doing very well. But we've got competition coming over the horizon. Mm. The highest selling uh, battery electrics was the Tesla Model Y, 2,095 of them, followed by the Tesla Model 3, 1,581. And, of course, the BYD Addo 3 uh, coming in at 1,118. But, you know, expect to see more product on the market. The signals from government are around a fixed policy. And what that does with manufacturing, it starts to see Australia as a far more uh, viable market. I know relative to petrol and diesel vehicles, it's a it's a smaller portion of the market. But that increase, that percentage increase year on year, I think is really significant. And as we get to plug-in hybrids here, Jeff, it's probably worth kind of a question mark from my side. And, and that is, are we shifting? Hybrids have actually been around for a little while. And, it, and it's as though some that may have been contemplating a hybrid for the first time are now bypassing it perhaps and going straight to electric, full yeah, electric. I, yeah, I, I think you could be right there. So we've got conventional hybrids, 
which is really, you know, energy, regenerated energy off the braking system back into the battery. That's what we now call traditional hybrids, okay? What we're mm-hmm. talking about here is plug-in hybrids where you've got an engine and you've got a battery, you can plug the thing in and, you know, you might get the first 60 or 90 or 120 kilometres uh, on the battery, then it cuts into the engine. For the month of April, 545 plug-in sales. That's a decrease of 84 vehicles or 30.4% over April last year. Now, this figure really surprises me. And and, and the year-to-date figure, by the way, for plug-ins is 2,006 units. And that's very low as far as I'm concerned. April last year, 1,676 on the same time last year of a low base. What I'm struggling with here is that what Australians say and what we say to government is, be careful with a fully electric vehicle market because we want to travel long distances. Mm. We, you know, we know the infrastructure is not quite there yet. I would have thought that plug-ins would be an absolute monty for Australians to really start to focus around them, and yet the numbers aren't going there. Mm. And I don't know, Greg, whether it's about stock or whether it's about people waiting for other government considerations in terms of financial support to come into them. I said at the beginning of the year we'd do 20,000 plug-in hybrids. I thought that I was going in low. We'd be lucky to do eight to 10,000 plug-in hybrids this year based on the numbers to date. Mm. Um, we know that there's FBT, fringe benefit tax exemptions for electric and hybrids at the moment, you know, if they're on a company, like a lease plan through your company. Plug-ins won't get that support for new cars after the 1st of April 2025. Our message to government here is don't cut plug-in hybrids off early Mm -hmm. because for me, it is the stepping stone that Australians need to grow enough confidence in the market to know they can travel relatively long distances without being petrified that they can't find a charger. I'm a bit dumbfounded with this because I'd have thought plug-in hybrids would be really racing ahead. They're not. And I don't know, I haven't had enough time. I've got a meeting with my dealers next week. I'm going to ask them, it's about supply. Mm Mm-hmm. It's not It's not working for me. And you might be right, Greg, there could be a whole group of people, if they can afford it, are just saying, do you know what? Why would I bother with a plug-in? I'll just go and buy a Tesla or a Polestar or a, or a Volvo. I'll just go fully electric right now. Before we get to petrol and diesel, on that kind of plea that you've just made for the government to, to consider that, is that going to fall on deaf ears? Are you getting a bit of traction with discussion you know, with them around that sort of stuff? So we'll be putting in uh, either an individual or a grouped-up industry response to the government's paper. There's a paper out right now. It's out for four weeks. four weeks left in the response time. We'll be saying very clearly in our response or even in a grouped-up response with some of the other associations, don't cut off plug-ins. Mm-hmm. Don't, this, this, you know, sort of, our oh, 2025, we don't think we want to support them. Um, it's a really bad move. And, if, and, of course, the argument, if I could balance the argument, what the Greens would say is, well, we don't know if you're ever going to plug it in. You might just drive it on petrol all the time. Well, why would I buy a plug-in if I'm going to drive it on petrol? You know, the, mm. we've, we've got to be a bit fairer here and, you know, not sort of insult the Australian consumers around what their buying behaviours are and their intentions. So we'll be pushing very hard with government. Don't cut off plug-in hybrids at the knees. Well done. Okay, hybrids, petrol and diesel. Let's finish our FCAI figure focus for the month of April with a look at those. Okay, 5,592 conventional hybrid sales. That's what we call conventional hybrid sales in April 2023, a decline of 9.6%. Doesn't surprise me because people will move to fully electric or plug-ins, but they're, as I suggested a minute ago, they're a bit slow. A year-to-date, conventional hybrid sales down 19%. 
I'm not surprised by that. I'd expect that to sort of trend in that direction. Uh, 42,369 petrol vehicles were sold in April. So let, you know, let's put things into perspective here. We're still selling 42,000 cars uh, in one month that are running on petrol. That's an increase of 470 vehicles, or 1.1% over last year. That's not stunning, but it just means that petrol is holding its ground at the moment. Uh, diesels, 23,246 diesel sales sold in April. That's a decrease of 4,623 vehicles, or 16.6%. I don't think this is a signal from the market around CO2 emissions. I think it's about supply of vehicles, so I'm not overly worried about that. Well done, Jeff. Thank you. And we will have the May download as we get a little closer to EFIS, end of financial year time. That's next month here on The Grill. Now, Jeff, I don't know why, but I immediately thought of you when I spotted this story on the world's largest engines. So 9MSN did a yarn on big engines, but they had to kind of be roadworthy or actually usable. I, look, there's a funny thing is with engines, and particularly if you, we've got a lot of engine reconditioners as members. If you go up to Castle Maine, there's some cars up there. They've basically got aeroplane engines dropped into cars, okay? Yeah. And it's just because you can. Correct. And, it, you know, if you go onto mine sites with the big D9s and the big motors up there, there's something about an oversized engine that is just the most remarkable thing. And I, and I need to tell you this because this will not happen when we're in the electric vehicle world. When you start a big engine up anywhere where there's people that like cars, it is like a magnet. And the bigger the motor... The bigger the engine, the more people gather around. So I'm a big fan of big engines. And if you can put an aircraft engine into a car, that's good. <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking about putting a V12 Merlin into my Morris. <laughs> Dear Morris. <laughs> there is some very cool stuff in that yarn. So trucks naturally feature in there. There's things like a 16.4-litre Scania. There's a Cadillac 16 with a 13.6-litre power plant. Lots of cool old stuff, a Bugatti Royale with a – 12.7-litre engine. I saw a Delage very recently that had, a, uh, I think, an aircraft engine in it that you were talking about. But what about, in that yarn, the Godfather, the 16.5-litre Chev? How good? I, I mean, that's just a beautiful thing, isn't it? Yeah. 16-litre Chevrolet. I'll have one. I'm going to start with uh, something that's a little fresh and different. We used to give my old mate, Billy Woods, Channel 10 sport and motor racing host – bit of shit about the Saab that he drove. <laughs> Somehow he hit a hay bale on the Sydney Harbour Bridge one day. Only could happen to Billy. Hit a hay bale on the Sydney? He hit a hay bale that fell, I think it fell off a truck on the Harbour Bridge. Only could happen to him. Now, Saab has a story, you know that. So Nevs, National Electric Vehicle Sweden, bought Saab, or what was left of it when it went under in 2012. The Evergrande Group, who were mainly into real estate, took them over in 2019, and they have been working on a secret project. They codenamed it Emily, an electric GT car. They went from, they say, sheet of paper to an actual car in 10 months. It's got four electric motors, one on each corner. They've got 121 horsepower each, so that's just under 500 horsepower, and they reckon they're going to build a performance one that can punch out about 644 horsepower. Here's the kicker. They reckon this thing, the first version, has a range, a driving range of 1,000 Ks on a single charge and a massive 175 kilowatt battery. Not bad for Saab. And not bad to do in 10 months. So they claim. 
unless there was some guy hiding in a <laughs> underground bunker for four years working his ass off, and then they just brought him up for the last ten months. I mean, isn't he quick? Yeah. Has anyone seen this thing? Is it all just rumour at the moment? There are pictures of it. Um, so it's a it's a yarn. We'll keep an eye on uh, Emily. There you go. Now, what about the greatest car collection you have never heard of? Maybe until now. Yeah, well, they've been ramping up cultural attractions in the Middle East um, for some time. So they're not just known for oil production. There's the, the famed Louvre Museum, Louvre Museum in Paris, had a sister gallery in Abu Dhabi. It does too, yeah. Um, am I allowed to tell you a quick joke about Abu Dhabi? <laughs> Do you know the difference between Dubai and Abu Dhabi? No. The people in Dubai don't like the Flintstones, but the people in Abu Dhabi do. <laughs> <laughs> only you. I know, only me. Good dad joke. Um, but there's a seriously cool car collection on display at Qatar. So currently 300 vehicles, another 1,000. So there's 300 vehicles you can see, but there's another 1,000 tucked away. Um, and the museum will open in the coming years with 1,200 exhibits. I've seen some pictures. It's un- it's unbelievable. and uh, Like, it's pristine. It kind of looks more museum than car museum. That sounds weird to say. It's just so neat and clean, and you can eat your, you can eat a meal off the floors. It's it's incredible. And I think you and I know enough people. Rusty, I've got a, another mate. I can't say too much. He he works for a billionaire. He said there's collections that he works for, and he's never seen anything like it. So they're they're still out there. I love that because mm. it's it's like talking about gold in the gold fields. Who mm. says the biggest nugget has been found? Do you know what I mean? Mm. We don't know what cars we haven't seen yet or, or what cars are being tucked away. So I love the fact that there's more museums coming online for the want of better term. So for us car nuts, it's great news. I love it. And a little reason uh, for a Middle East visit or stopover at some point. I mean, they've got Ferrari World next door to the Abu Dhabi track there. Now Qatar with this uh, this cool new museum. Looking for reliability? Switch to Denso and you'll understand why their products outperform anything else in the industry. From ignition coils to engine management sensors, AC components and alternators, filters to fuel pumps and much more. Plus, cutting edge spark plug technology that makes Denso plugs sought after worldwide. Built to last the distance and keep you on our roads longer. Thanks to the industry leading testing facilities, that they have right here in Australia. At your next service, be sure to ask for Denso or you can find your part at denso.com.au. Now, in our last episode, our feature interview was former professional surfer Lane Beachley. It's awesome. And if you haven't heard the story of how Shane and Lane set a Guinness World Record, you need to go back and have a listen. It's terrific. Lane joins us once again, and this episode, it's all about mindset, something that is bloody important when it comes to winning world titles. Before you started winning all these titles, um, I just I know because we've had chats in the past about what you had to do, um, and I just can't imagine how loud you would have had to have yelled at your own mind because I know you went and you dragged yourself I'm sure everyone thinks it's glamorous and I know the world is to a lot of competitors now but you were back at the time when it was very much a solo journey you were sleeping on almost if I'm not mistaken strangers couches in you know in foreign countries where you're sitting on a couch in a room full of men that you don't really know hoping you're safe and having to I imagine battle all those questions in your brain to get to that win. It wasn't an easy start for you, was it? it was When I heard your start, I actually thought it sounded impossible and I wouldn't have succeeded man or woman at, at that journey. But it was a very humble beginning to say the least, wasn't it? 
It was. It was very challenging. When you start talking about couch surfing, one of my favourite memories, or actually one of my least favourite couches to sleep on, was a Jason recliner in the lounge room in Newquay in England across the road from the Red Lion Hotel. So I would listen to revellers drinking beer all night long while I'm sleeping in a Jason recliner trying to prepare to, to surf in a contest. Needless to say, I didn't really perform that well. But I was literally, yeah, travelling around the world couch surfing or sleeping in my board bag at events and hitchhiking and and just doing whatever I could do to make ends meet, staying in hostels, dragging my board bag through bloodstains outside of hostels, going, oh, this feels safe <laughs> in South Africa. <laughs> uh, but, you know, those, those challenges taught me to obviously very, to sincerely appreciate what I have and be grateful for what I can do and, and focus on what I can control and, and just really surround myself with people who bring the best out in me. And it's interesting that you say I bring the best out in people, but that's a result of having people around me that bring the best out in me too. So. It's very easy to point the finger and lay the blame and, and be a, have a victimised mentality, but it's our challenges that actually help us grow. And, um, and, you know, from adversity comes greatness was one of the, the classic cliche quotes that I had on my bedroom mirror ever since I was about 15 years of age, and it's, it just truly really inspired me to keep going. But my desire to achieve far outweighed my fear of failure, so I was constantly focused on getting to the end result and just never choosing to give up on it because um, your dreams never give up on you. So why do you give up on them? And it's probably because so many people around you tell you that you can't do it and that you're never going to make it and you're not talented enough. And then you start to listen to those people who I refer to as my dream thieves and ultimately they suck the life out of you and then you're left deflated and then victimised and, and conditioned by the circumstances of your life. And as Ben Crow always says, or as Stephen Covey originally said, it's our, our decisions, not our conditions that determine our happiness. At what point did you tap into this and, and how much did it help? You know, athletes often talk about how difficult it is to win one title, let, let alone back it up and win a, a, another one. How much did it help in that process? Well, enormous amount, I must admit, Rusty. I think the first five years, like I set the goal when I first joined the tour that I was going to win a world title in the first five years and it took me eight years. So after that fifth year, I was ready to quit. I'd had enough. This is all too hard. I'm walking away. And it was my personal trainer one afternoon sat me down and asked me, what is it that you want to achieve? And I said, a world title. He said, what's it going to take? 100%. How much are you investing in it right now? And it was true. It was like this honesty barometer of a, a bow, like an arrow across the bow, and here's your moment of truth. You're going to choose to get out of your own way or you're going to get the job done. And the answer to the question at the time was like 65%, but I'd, commit, I'd convinced myself that I was doing everything that was needed to be done. So it wasn't until after those first five years that I start to invest in the power of the mind and start to understand how I have the capacity to reprogram my brain, fortunately. But I also have to take responsibility for the decisions that I'm making because it's choice, not chance, that determines your destiny. And I was relying on hope and chance and, and I was thinking and guessing and I wasn't believing, I wasn't trusting and I wasn't reaching my potential because I was allowing external circumstances to dictate that potential to me. And once I started to realise that I was holding myself back, that I was placing these limitations on myself, and I started to journal, I started to surround myself with people who saw the best in me and brought the best out in me. I, I, I detached a lot from the dream thieves and the life vampires that sucked the life out of me and told me I was never going to make it. I became very discerning about who I surrounded my with, I, myself with. I became more focused on how can I be a better human being, which is what we hear a lot about with Ash Barty, right? How can I be a better human being, which will ultimately lead to being a better competitor? Because I knew what the goal was. The goal had always been a world championship, 
but what are the processes? What are the steps? What are the tools I need to now fill my toolkit with to ensure that I step closer to that versus further away from that? And I must admit, in those first five years, I was very easily distracted too. I didn't know how to narrow my attention. And FOCUS is my favourite acronym. It stands for Follow One Course Until Successful. I was following about 12 at that point. Excellent. Is there anything to be said for someone like me that does a pretty average shit job at a whole bunch of stuff and just hope it sticks? <laughs> Shane, the, the one thing that we can help you out with is just your um, the way that you talk about yourself to yourself because we know that you don't do a pretty average shit job at anything. We know that you invest yourself wholeheartedly into it, but it doesn't matter what we say. It actually comes down to what you say about you and your relationship with yourself sets the tone for every other relationship in your life. So if you're kinder to yourself, people are kinder to you. I had zero empathy or compassion for myself. I was very unkind. I was tagged as having the compassion of a tiger shark because I saw everyone as in my way. So it comes down to being kinder and more compassionate and having more empathy for ourselves and then it comes from there. It comes from our heart. I've never seen you do a shit job at anything except for when I invited you to Bells and we did that Easter egg hunt. You were pretty shit at finding the eggs. <laughs> Which should surprise most people. you yes. think I'd be like a sniffer dog. <laughs> I think you were just letting the other people find them. You just didn't want to get them all. I do try to be the Labrador. I'm not a, I'm not a killer tiger shark. I do try to be the Labrador that bounces down the road smiling. Lane, you are, a, you are a gem. You've been super with your, your time here. Can we bounce through some fun stuff to finish? And the boys might have one or two more questions before we let you go. Firstly, what was your first car when you started this whole dream of, you know, mid-teens kid, manly, chasing the surfing dream? What was the first set of wheels? Come on. My first set of wheels was actually a skateboard, to be honest. But my first <laughs> set of wheels, <laughs> that was the first thing I had to have four wheels on it was my skateboard. No, my roller skates. I had four wheels on each foot. My first set of wheels was, uh, so when I won my first event in 1993, I bought myself a bike and then the following year I bought myself a car in 1994. It was a Mazda 323 hatchback. It was a 1981 model and I bought it from a company in Manly, I think, or a rent, it was called Rent-A-Rec or Rent-A-Ruffy. Rent-A-Bomb. It cost me Rent-A-Bomb. It cost me $1,500. And I think the stereo in it had an equaliser and the following night I think someone came and tried to steal the stereo because it was probably worth more than the car. And it got to the point where I could keep the keys in it and go surfing, leave the keys in the car and open up the lock with a pedal pop stick. Crazy. Oh, it's magnificent. We, we have people in big automotive businesses or small ones that want to go to the next step and, you know, self-doubt. We all suffer from this from time to time, some more than others, of course, and you know, I'd be very surprised if, if there weren't times in your career and you thought, you know, is this the right path? Is this, How do we push through that? How do we, how do we say stop that thinking and move through? Can you just tell me the actual answer to that? Sure. <laughs> it's the same way that we can address fear. First, we have to honour the fact that we are either thinking, feeling or saying these things. Because the, the challenge is if we don't honour where we're at, we can't move through it. We actually attempt to suppress it and all it does is actually push it further down, deeper into it, but it means it's still there. So if you're having a doubtful thought, honour the fact that that thought is actually occurring. And then you can ask yourself, is this true? Because if we're feeling a certain way, because our thoughts determine how we feel and then our, feel, our feelings determine how we behave, And then how we behave determines the results that we produce in our lives. So what we think we become. If we don't start creating a consistent line of thought, 
then we'll create inconsistent performance. And an inconsistent performance is literally a direct reflection of inconsistent thought. And that's what I was able to do when I was having negative thoughts. I would go, oh, that's a negative thought. Thanks for coming. Like it was almost like I would be the observer of my thoughts. And this is what Eckhart Tolle often talks about. Is He, he says that don't be your thoughts, be the awareness behind them because it's not until we attach a meaning to that thought and then we wrap a story around that thought that that creates a level of identity and connection. So having limiting beliefs or having self-doubt is actually quite normal. We all do it. I have it too. I have days when I don't believe in myself and I doubt myself and then I ask myself, why am I doubting myself? Because I now know that when I'm feeling, if I'm in a state of self-sabotage or I'm doubting or I'm comparing myself to others, which always leads to a sense of inadequacy, or if I'm criticising myself or I'm seeking external validation, that to me is my indicator that I'm burning out because that's not my natural state. I don't need you to tell me whether I'm good enough because I believe it myself. But if I'm starting to look outside of me for validation, I'm fatigued, I'm burning out, I've pushed too hard, I need rest. But that's my own sense of self-awareness. So if you're having self-limiting thoughts or you're having doubts, acknowledge first it's normal to have them. And then second, what is it that you want to feel? How is it that you want to think? Like you get to choose. You have the sovereignty or the the opportunity to reprogram that brain. Can we do some rapid fire to finish here because you've been awesome with us. Thank you. What's in the garage now? A Toyota RAV4 hybrid. Nice. Shane brought up our massive love of in excess before. True or false, you played on that, you know, in that little Mazda on the the dodgy equaliser. Did you have a cassette or a CD of in excess music, yes or no? Cassette, yes. You're an in excess fan. I love it. Awesome stuff. I mean, the first show I ever went to was an in excess concert in my little Garfield jumper. For those that don't know, and you'd have to be living under a rock if you didn't, that, uh, you know, Lane is married to a member of NXS, yes, Kurt. Uh, and, and I've got video footage in my phone that I won't share with the world. It's you and me and a whole busload of us singing an NXS song coming back from the Grand Prix track yes. back to our accommodation. I've got video of all of us singing. It came, it came on the radio and, like, we're like, hang on a moment, maybe we should be singing this. It got turned up and, of course, everyone on that, and it was actually, I'm going to say, we had the best. It was Hamish, Andy. We had yep. gosh, we had a great crew with us that year and it was, uh, and there wasn't a single person on that bus that didn't know every single word to the song. Excellent. So to finish, did you beat him? Did you and Kelly beat him in the Celebrity Challenge? I hope so. I don't know. Did I? No, you didn't beat Shane? My traction control was on the whole race and I ended up like second last and I was almost crying and punching the wheels. I was so frustrated. (laughs) Every time I went around the corner, my car slowed down. It did. They apologised, but that wasn't good. Yeah, they apologised and she got got over it like really quickly. It only took her like 10 years. (laughs) (laughs) I have to tell you my favourite story to finish on because Lane was the full stop to a story that my wife will never let me forget. It was a. It was quite a few years ago, and it was uh, it was at Christmas, and me and my wife. My wife's from Sydney. I'm from Melbourne. Every year we leapfrog. One year we do Melbourne with my family. One year we do Sydney. It was Sydney's turn, and we're about to get on the plane to fly with all the kids. And at that point, really young, like in nappies, kind of young. And uh, we were about to go to the airport, and my wife said, "Should I wear something nice?" And she had this blue comfortable windsheeter on, and I said, "Just stay in the comfy windsheeter, the wear around the house windsheeter. We're not going on show. There's going to be hardly anyone on these flights." Christmas Day has already happened. We're just getting to Sydney. 
And I said, plus, let's be honest, Jax is going to vomit on you at some point. So I convinced her just to wear this floppy jumper. We go to the airport. We get to valet parking. We walk through. And Shane, Shane Warne comes in and says, G'day, Shane. How are you? I'm good, thanks, mate. This is my wife, Felicity. He said, hello, Felicity. This is my partner, Liz Hurley. So she's being introduced to Liz Hurley <laughs> and Shane Warne. We get on the flight. She's wearing this floppy windsheeter. <laughs> we get on the flight. We sit down. And as I sit down, right behind us, we hear, g'day, Shane. I turn around and Harvey Silver, who invented the footy show as a producer, says, oh, g'day, mate. Oh, Harvey, this is my wife. Right. We get off that plane. We go to the baggage carousel. And all the way from the plane, all the way to the baggage carousel is this incredibly tall, beautiful young girl who looks like a supermodel. I mean, just looks like a supermodel. And she's walking to the point that Fliss says, oh, now I've got to walk beside a supermodel because seriously, can we slow down? We slowed down. It was almost like the supermodel read our mind and slowed down a bit. We sped up. (laughs) She was right beside us all the way to the baggage carousel, hand on heart, this is true. And then as we go to, we get our bags, we walk away from that to go to the curbside where Fliss's mum's going to pick us up. And this beautiful tall girl walks all the way beside us there and she's standing on the curbside with us. And Fliss says, it's like the world's trying to embarrass me. And she's whispering in my ear. A car pulls up <clears throat> and out of that car gets Lane Beachley and <laughs> Kurt Pengilly from in excess because the girl standing beside us is Kurt's daughter. And then I have to go, <laughs> Lane. And I go, Lane, this is my wife. Kurt, this is my wife. Oh, this is my daughter, April. So she was, we get back in the car. They all say goodbye. And my wife says, Oh, wear the blue windsheeter. I'll never listen to you again. And she has never listened to me again since that day. Smart woman. Very smart woman. Order of Australia medal, Australian sports medal, staggering seven world titles. It's been an honour for us to chat with you today and thank you so much for the insights too, particularly for uh, our women in automotive listening to this show. Lane, thanks so much. Thanks, Rusty. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Having supplied more than 300 million clutch kits to OE clients, Exidy has earned a reputation for trust, respect and quality. All Exidy OEM replacement kits include high-quality cover assemblies, clutch discs and release bearings and are manufactured to strict specifications for fitment, longevity and noise suppression. When you choose to fit OEM replacement kit from Exidy's extensive range, you'll enjoy the same loyalty that they demonstrate to OE clients around the globe. Find out more at exidy.com.au. Let's dive into the glove box and have a look at some of your mail before we go on this episode. Sorry we didn't get to uh, some of your messages, your emails and so on during the April episode. That's when we had our GP special at the Formula One in Melbourne. A lot of fun there. Uh, One from me, uh, from Gemma, from fittingly, from Albert Park. That's very nice. How did I get the nickname Thruster? Now, Gemma, there is no naughty stories (laughs) about this. Can I tell you, the great Barry Sheen gave me that nickname. Now, the reason – I mean, you could think it was cheeky with Baz. (laughs) um, But, Jeff, the reason – he did that is that Russell Ingall, the uh, the supercars champion in 2005, the, the driver who was nicknamed the Enforcer and had won Bathurst a few times, Russell also had the nickname Rusty. So Baz thought, we've got to do something different here. We can't have two Rusties in the pit lane. And he was always adamant that I would march up the lane to try and 
find the scoop, get the interview or whatever with, with my chest out, like I was thrust in my chest out, you would say. Oh, <laughs> so is that right? That is that is where it came from. Baz coined the name, so I'm very, very proud of it and um, and I, I uh, continue the tradition to this day. He very sadly has been gone 20 years now, which is yeah. crazy. Great, great uh Yeah, great man, great man, you're right. Here's one from John in Armidale. How will the new Albanese government fuel standards (laughs) affect me? Well, it depends uh, uh, what John's driving. Uh, And and if you, at at the moment, the new fuel standards don't talk about penalties for existing vehicles on the road, okay? And that's that's positive. Look, if you want to buy an electric vehicle uh, and the fuel standards uh, really drive manufacturers to bring in more zero or low emission vehicles, then there'll be more product in the market and it's possible over time that that will drive prices down for electric vehicles as well. I mean, the, one of the models is basically, look, here's a manufacturer, you bring in 100,000 cars a year, you've got to start, here's a line that says the CO2 emissions have got to drop uh, every year. So you you not only have to bring in more low or zero emission vehicles, which is EVs or whole hybrids, you not, not bring them in, you've got to, actually got to sell them so you could actually see electric vehicles being discounted so that the manufacturer can actually shift them so they end up with the right carbon balance between the, the, all of the vehicles that they import. So uh, depending on what car uh, uh, John's got and depending what he wants in the future, you know, there could be a fridge sale. Who knows? <laughs> okay. Final one for Shane. It comes from Brent in Dandenong. He says, hi, crew. Love the podcast. I need your advice. My father owns an XB Falcon and my father-in-law owns an HG Monaro. My family is Ford. My in-laws are Holden. My problem is this. What? Oh, no. I really like Mitsubishi Magnus. <laughs> when, when should I come out? I don't think my fiance will appreciate a wedding admission. What should I do? He should shut up. <laughs> he, should, he, should, he should tell no one. He shouldn't have told us. We shouldn't hear this. Oh. What if someone figures out they've got a mate from Dandenong whose name's Brent? What if they put two and two, two together, together and realise it's him? Oh, Brent, we feel for you, brother. Does he really like the Mitsubishi Magna? I think that's the hardest part I'm dealing with. That's the hardest part. We had a five-ton truck at a company I used to work at, and the company car I had to drive was a Mitsubishi Magna, and the turning circle was better on the truck than it was the Magna. (laughs) True story. Fact. And I know it because I used to live in a court, and when I drove the Magna home, I had to do a two-point turn to get around it, and when I turned up in the truck, I did one swing. True story. Unbelievable. Very hard to beat that from a blow-it-out-your-tailpipe standpoint, but we finish our second episode each month with a little something that goes like this. Blow it out your tailpipe. <laughs> so here's my blow it out your tailpipe, not just for this episode, but for the rest of my life. <laughs> my sister-in-law has ordered a new car. She's got to wait for a bit. We know that's the way the world's going at the moment. But she had to go, well, she, she didn't have to, but she went to a dealership and she's, filled out all the paperwork and she's paid a deposit. And then it gets to that bit that we've all been through, which is the aftermarket stuff. Now, first I want to start by saying years ago it made sense. If you want a tow ball, get one. Maybe you do want car mats. It wasn't such a bad idea. Maybe you wanted the little bits that bolt onto the side of the doors so that the wind, so you can have the window down but the wind's not really in your face but you get the 
the air coming into the cabin without whacking you in the face. The only thing that did do back when I was a cigarette smoker is it used to make the ash fly back in the car. It did this weird swirly thing. But anyway, let's not get hunkered down on that. But here's the thing. I just want to put this out there. How disappointed I am to find out that all car manufacturers have only finished the paint job to a halfway point and they leave the rest of the work to be done by the sales reps at car dealerships who tell you, if you really don't want this car to rust, you've got to spend $1,000 on this rust proofing and all this protection. The blowing out the tailpipe is they tried to sell her all those extra, you know when they spray the upholstery rusty yeah. and then, I mean, was it, was it in the 1970s, if I'm not mistaken, Porsche were the first to dip the cars in zinc, to literally galvanise cars. This is in the mid-70s and here in 2023, people are being told that if you want to spend the extra money, you get that rust-proofing or and the, the Juco protection. I foolishly won, so I'll admit I became a part of this fear-mongering campaign, this witch doctory that had me convinced without it I was in trouble because I lived in Newport in Melbourne and there were bats there. And, you know, the expression bat shit, yes. they do. They actually shit. These bats do it. And they used to do it regularly where I was because I had this tree with purple berries on them which attracted the bats. Not good for the juco. Correct. It's terrible. And and people probably think it's just a, an urban myth. It's not. It's a fact. It's, it, it is acid, right, mm. or, or a version thereof. So they said this thing is actually bat put proof and I paid the money and about a week after I got the <laughs> brand new car home, a bat went <laughs> and did a full Kenny on the roof of my car and just destroyed the Juco. So I threw money straight into the bin, basically. It's just, I just want to say to people, I'm saying this on behalf of myself and myself only, you don't have to. Blow it out your tailpipe if you think you've got to <laughs> recommend this stuff to people. And I'm going to tell you, this is a little link to it, right? Mm-hmm. I watched a thing online the other day because it does play into people's fears. I watched a thing online the other day, right? where a guy had a whole bunch of people in a room and they were looking at a whiteboard and on the whiteboard there was a blue circle and there was a red circle. And when everyone sat down, he said, now, everyone, look at these two circles. Now, um, to your naked eyes, you look at these circles, you probably think they're the same size. And he said, but, in fact, one of these is larger than the other. Who here thinks the blue circle is bigger than the red circle? I'm getting to a point, Rusty, trust me. And uh, and about 70% of the room put their hand up. And then he said, who thinks the red circle is bigger than the blue circle? And 30% of the room put their hand up. And he said, there you go. Well, here's the thing I'm going to tell you, is you were all right to lean on what your body had told you or your brains had told you or what your eyes saw. They are, in fact, the same size. But just because I said that one was bigger than the other, you all went, oh, well, he said it is, so it must be. Just because someone says if you don't spray this thing on your car, it's going to rust, why can't people go, that's frog shit? <laughs> anyway, that's my blow it out your tailpipe for this week. I just, we all know it's where they make a lot of cash. Mm. And I'm going to get shot for saying this, but the manufacturers have got a rough idea what they're doing with these cars. They do not leave it to the sales rep at a dealership to finish the car off. Mm. Whatever happened to Shane Jacobson, he was committed to doing upselling for the rest of his natural life after that one moment, that one moment on the grill. We are out of time for this episode. Thank you to Tommy T on the producer buttons and our mate DD, David Dowsey at VACCHQ for all of their help, as always. Catch you next time, everyone. Bye for now. I don't want any of your additions. I'll see you on the road, folks. This episode was brought to you by Bendix Brakes, Denso and Exidy. The Grill, a collaboration with VACC, the Victorian Automotive Chamber of Commerce, and powered by Listener.
listener.